Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we want to know you. We want to see your son Jesus more clearly because we know and we are ever more learning as we go through the gospel of John that in him we have true and everlasting life. And so help us now, we pray. Amen. Short-sighted. To be short-sighted is to focus so much on what's immediately in front of us that we lose the sight of what is going to happen in the future. Some of us are more prone to be short-sighted than others. (laughs) But all of us fall prey to it at some time or another, and sometimes with good reason, and other times not so much. College students have a unique opportunity to grow out of short-sightedness during that season of their life because every night of a college student life seems to have the opportunity to be filled with social engagements. And the short-sighted student takes those engagements. And the one who isn't short-sighted studies. Politicians have the role of crafting laws for our country for the good of our future, well off into our future, and yet so many of them, by the nature of pressure and of their job, fall prey to making decisions that will simply influence the next election cycle. Short-sighted. Sometimes we spend money on our desires that are right in front of us without consideration of the long-term implications. This is especially a temptation at Christmas. And we better be careful lest we too become short-sighted. But what if the thing that we want most, the thing that is right in front of us, what if that thing is noble, is needed, or something that you've been patiently waiting for for years. Perhaps you've asked God for that thing. Perhaps you've pleaded with him for a new job, for a physical cure to your illness, for emotional relief, or for a healthier marriage. Important things. Life-changing things. And even when we want those things, and sometimes God gives them to us, Jesus still gives us a warning about being short-sighted. And we see this warning in John chapter 5. And so I want to ask you, if you've yet to open a Bible with me, to grab the Pew Bible in front of you to page 890 and turn to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. John 5, 1 through 18. And we continue in this series that we're calling Life Giver. And Jesus is going from place to place now, and through his works and his words and his ways, he's revealing who he is. And as we get into John chapter 5 and and chapter 6 in the subsequent weeks, we see that Jesus is particularly keen on revealing himself as the Son of God. And in that, we see both encouragement and warning. And so let's read it together. Please follow with me. John chapter 5, starting at verse 1, says this. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, 
which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The stage is set, the miracle worker, Jesus, moves to Jerusalem. And he enters Jerusalem during one of the feasts. It doesn't tell us which one, but it's safe to assume that the city was crowded and the temple courts were probably full of people. And as he enters the city, he goes through the specific gate and comes to a place called Bethesda. Archaeologists have found this place, Bethesda, with its pool and its five colonnades. And apparently this was a place where many invalids lay because there were healings that happened there. People would come and they would camp out in hopes that they would be healed. And so try to picture it with me, if you will. Five colonnades, a pool in the middle, and dozens, if not hundreds, paralyzed, lame, blind people and their caregivers probably all gathered around with the hope of all hopes that their illness would be healed when the waters were stirred. And so Jesus comes to this place. It wasn't an accident. He didn't have to go there. It's on purpose. Just like it wasn't an accident that Jesus went to Sychar in Samaria. It wasn't an accident that he met the woman at the well. Jesus doesn't have accidental occurrences with people. He's going there for a purpose and he's seeking out this particular man. He comes to Bethesda and in his compassion he chooses one, just one, to initiate this conversation with. There's no reason why that we can see. The man doesn't know who Jesus is. He's got no indication of faith. 
or knowledge of him. The only reason why that we can tell is because of his need. 38 years he had been an invalid. 38 years he's been stricken to the mat. He's been laying on his bed longer than Jesus had been on earth at this point. For 38 years, he's relied on others to help him. For 38 years, or at least some amount of that 38 years, he couldn't even get into the water by himself when it was stirred. For 38 years, he's hoped and he's prayed that his situation would change. And then comes Jesus, and by the simple words that come out of his mouth, do you want to be healed? Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Immediately the man's reality changes. <laughs> and just like that, he has full strength that's restored. I was trying to conceive of that this week as I was thinking about the immediate and the complete nature of Jesus' healings. I mean, think about it. When you have an injury, or maybe you have a surgery that's because you've struggled with something for weeks or maybe months, how do you get your strength back? Well, you do a number of exercises. You maybe go to physical therapy for a amount of time, and slowly and surely over time, you regain strength in whatever the appendage was that was ailing you. But here, by the simple words that came out of his mouth, full and complete strength is given to the man. That is the power of Jesus. And it's not surprising. This had been prophesied about, along with many other things regarding Jesus. Isaiah 35, hundreds of years before Jesus came, says this. It says, strengthen the weak hands and make, the firm, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Immediate, life-changing reality. But Jesus' words to the man following the healing indicate that the healing was not just to change his physical life. He had another purpose. The story continues. Jesus retreats from the colonnade. You can imagine the stir with dozens, if not hundreds of people laying there waiting to be healed. One gets healed and the healer's in their midst. He withdraws. The man takes up his bed and walks and does the first thing that you would think to do, which would be to reintegrate into society. And so he does that and he goes on to the temple. Jesus finds him again and he says to him in verse 14, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now that poses a number of questions. And we'll answer them in just a minute. But before we do, you need to recognize 
that Jesus' miracles are never an end in and of themselves. Jesus' miracles are called signs because they always point to a greater reality. (laughs) They point to something beyond themselves. Yes, Jesus heals. Yes, Jesus radically changes the man's life. But yes, there's something even more important that he's trying to do that this man needs to consider. And this miracle points to two things, two realities. The first one is this. This healing is for the sake of highlighting a greater illness. I mean, surely when Jesus says to the man, sin no more, lest something worse happen to you, he isn't implying that it was a specific sin of the man that caused him to be an invalid. I mean, we know that Jesus rebukes that type of idea just a couple chapters later in John chapter 9, verse 2. It's not the sins of parents that are applied to their children or individual sins applied to people. That disease and physical ailments and all those things are a result of a sinful world and a broken humanity. (laughs) Things are not the way that they're supposed to be. But disease or disability is not the consequence of God's revenge on specific sins of people. And so this begs the question, what is the something worse that Jesus is talking about? And I think the answer is related to the warning to sin no more. What's worse than being an invalid for 38 years? The eternal consequence of sin. What's worse than laying on a mat for 38 years? What's worse that Jesus points to is God's judgment. Now, this is, you think about that for a second, and you think about the timing of that, and it's a striking word for a man who just had his whole life turned around minutes before, (laughs) that he's been waiting and waiting and hoping and hoping, but Jesus points that his greatest need is actually still before him. He heals the physical need. It was a bad one. I mean, what could be worse than 38 years of complete dependence on other people every single day for your subsistence? What could be worse than having hope after hope, day after day, dashed that your life might change and you might be healed as you're waiting for a miracle to come? And now mere minutes after all of these hopes are actually realized, and the world is opened up to this man anew, Jesus comes in and with his words gives a direct and simple warning right to the heart of the matter. What's worse than being trapped as an invalid? Being eternally trapped in hell. And so you can start to see the comparison, right? You can see that the healing in the body points to the place where there will be eternal healing in the body and in the soul. (laughs) 
that there'll be no weeping, no pain, no sin, only glory. And it's like Jesus says to the man, I've just given you a taste of the eternal right now and use that taste to motivate you to live in righteousness for the rest of your life. And I think there are a lot of implications about that for us. Let's consider just three of them. Implication number one is the temptation. This highlights the temptation to be satisfied in the temporal. I mean, the man thinks that he has just gained the world. And now the temptation for him is even greater. (laughs) And so it's true for you and for me. To seek God for the needs, the basic needs, the short-term needs, the temporary needs of healing of our ailments or immediate favor in our job or significant needs in our family. And when God answers those prayers, if he gives us what we want, we're tempted to think, that's it. Job done. God has blessed me. I have everything I need. And in that moment, we tend to forget the most important need. It's one thing to respond to the call of Jesus for our everyday needs, which we're supposed to do. It's another thing to look to him every day in reliance for our greatest need. And so we see the implication is don't let your immediate needs blind you from your greatest need as it relates to sin. Because here's the reality. Our physical comfort often numbs the urgency to our spiritual need. If you think about that for a minute, you'll see it true in your own life. Our physical comfort often numbs the urgency that we have of our spiritual need. And I can think of story after story of friends who point to God's provision for their life. They give him credit and glory for all that God has done for them. And they don't seek him every single day to live a righteous life and to sin no more. (laughs) They say, God's done his work. He's blessed me. I have all that I need. but there's a greater need. And what's so amazing about Jesus is that when asked for the needs in the temporary, he responds according to his good pleasure and to his will. And sometimes he gives us our temporal needs. But when asked about and for the greatest need, he gives the greatest response. When you abide in him and his words abide in you. (laughs) He helps you to live a righteous life. To do what he's saying to the man. To sin no more. And when you do stumble, he's quick to forgive. I think of a story published a few months ago of of a man named Daniel McNeely who's a pediatric neurosurgeon in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He's used to fielding difficult questions from nervous parents and from his patients. 
But it was a first for him this fall when an eight-year-old boy had a specific request. As the child was being wheeled back to the OR, clutching his teddy bear, he looked at the neurosurgeon and said, my bear is ripped. Please sew him up. (laughs) The boy is identified as Jason McKee as a cyst on his brain and a chronic condition called hydrocephalus. And according to Global News, the surgery was to drain the fluid and relieve the pressure on his brain. And the doctor, Dr. McNeely, assured the boy that he would, and he took the task very seriously. After McNeely performed the surgery on the boy's brain, he placed the teddy bear on the table, put on blue gloves, a neonatal mask, and used the leftover stitches from the child's surgery to repair the underarm tear on his teddy bear. (laughs) And then in another first, McNeely, who had never tweeted before in his life, went to Twitter that Sunday to post a picture of the moment that one of the surgical residents had captured, and he wrote, Patient asks if I can also fix teddy bear just before being put off to sleep. How could I say no? (laughs) What a great picture of a compassionate response to a lesser need in the midst of an overwhelming response to this boy's greater need. And that's what Jesus does for us. And so don't miss it. Don't miss that Jesus' work in the present to meet your present needs. Don't miss the fact that they point to his work in the future. Don't miss it. Don't miss the fact that, yes, Jesus meets your needs right now, today, every day. And in meeting those needs, that's not the completion of his work. He's pointing you to an even greater need and a greater work. That's what he's doing for the man, and that's what he's doing for you. And so don't get bogged down in the temporary. Implication number two, there's a warning here, (laughs) and there's a warning for all of us. And it's important to recognize the warnings in the Bible, because in our time in 21st century Western Christianity, we very often want a Jesus and a Christianity that loves and encourages and promises and gives great gifts and then delivers. (laughs) But we get a little squeamish when there comes responsibilities and warnings. Jesus gives warnings, and his warnings are not warnings with the intent to injure. Just the opposite is true. His warnings are with the motivation of love. It's the same type of warning that a parent gives his child or that one friend gives to another. The same Jesus that it says comes to seek and save the lost is the same Jesus who says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. (laughs) Rather, fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Sometimes we need to be warned. (laughs) I think of the employee who clearly isn't doing his job very well. And not only is he not doing his job very well, but he's got a terrible attitude as he's doing it. 
and begins to create this toxic environment in the office. And his boss takes notice, and she really has a couple of options. Option number one, she can start to catalog everything the employee does and fails at and says and move to terminate the employee rather quickly. Or she could warn him (laughs) with the hope and the desire that he would succeed, that he would change his course. And so she does warn him, and how he responds indicates his willingness to change. The same is true for the followers of Jesus. In the midst of our sin, the Lord Jesus comes. He seeks us out, and in doing so, he gives us great gifts. He promises wonderful things. He encourages our soul, and he warns us (laughs) against our greatest enemy, our sin. And how we respond to him and to the warning indicates our sentiment toward him and toward his ways. Sometimes Christians fall into sin. (laughs) Sometimes Christians fall into repeated habits or patterns of sin. And part of the role of Christian friends one to another, part of the role of church members one to another, is to encourage, to exhort, and to love, and even to warn In some ways, that's what it means to be a church member. We welcomed a bunch of church members up here today, and they are committing to you, to the family of Old North. We are going to strive together toward growth in the Lord Jesus. And we're going to love and encourage and exhort, and if need be, if need be, we'll warn. We could tell countless success stories of, of folks over the years that have stumbled along the way of their Christian life and fallen into habits and patterns of sin, but through love and exhortation and even through warning, have heeded the warning, have turned their course, and have grown in faithfulness. (laughs) And those are great success stories of God's grace. And when they hear and they receive, that indicates their desire to change. Sadly, we could also give examples of those who don't heed the warnings of friends, of fellow church members, or of their elders and pastors, who are really not warning in and of themselves. They're simply reminding of the warnings of Jesus himself. And in some of those cases, church discipline becomes the final warning. (laughs) And this too indicates a spiritual state and a sentiment toward Jesus and his ways. And so, friends, don't fall prey, don't fall prey into this notion that Jesus is just your buddy who wants you to feel good all the time. No, Jesus gives us some warnings, but the warning is motivated by love. It says in Mark chapter 2, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. And so Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, (laughs) but to call the sinner. Implication number three, I think, of of this healing is seen in Jesus' loving mission and how his mission is more than human flourishing. 
You understand what I mean by that? The model of love that Jesus gives here is for the well-being of the man, for the well-being of the hungry, for the well-being of the blind and for the deaf, and not just his physical well-being. The motivation of love is, yes, for that physical well-being as a means to point to the greater need, to the gospel need, to the need for forgiveness. That's his mission. And so, too... Christian, that's our mission. That's our mission as a church. That's your mission as an individual. It's not just to advance human flourishing, as great as that is and as wonderful as it sounds. But the mission of Jesus is for the eternal, to meet the eternal need of the forgiveness of sins. And in that, he also addresses human flourishing. And so, for example, we could partner with all kinds of organizations that help with feeding the hungry and educating people and doing a variety of things, which are wonderful causes for the sake of human flourishing. But that's not the mission of Jesus. How do we know? Because if it was, he would have healed all of the people at the colonnade, not just the one. He wouldn't just feed 5,000 in the next chapter. He'd feed feed (laughs) 500,000. He wouldn't allow blind people to continue to go about blind throughout the course of the known land. It's the same power with one word. He could heal them all. But he doesn't do that. (laughs) He has a greater mission than just human flourishing. I have to say there are a lot of great organizations that do these two things well together. We get to partner with many of them. I'm so encouraged by our partnership with the Rescue Mission here in Mahoning Valley. Many of you know John Muckridge and Jenna Hoffsmith and uh, Lynn and a number of the people that work there. Um, They engage in a very real on-the-ground need of helping people get off the streets to feed them, to shelter them, to help them reintegrate into society no matter what has happened or where they've been. But... They're not just in the business of human flourishing. They're on the mission of Jesus. And so they share the gospel, they teach the Bible, they disciple people to be followers of him because that's his mission. Miracles and signs point to something beyond themselves. The first thing that this points to, as we've mentioned, is the eternal mission of Jesus over the temporal. The second thing is the relationship or the work of the Father and the Son. And let me just cover this very quickly for you because we're going to talk much more about this next week. Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. The man picks up his mat and he carries it on the Sabbath. And this creates immediate tension for Jesus and the Pharisees, and for the man, and for the Pharisees. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Jewish laws of the Sabbath, let me just summarize them very quickly. The Sabbath is a command of God in the Old Testament for Old Testament believers as a day of rest in the Ten Commandments. And as such, as time goes on and the working out of the law is expanded upon by the Jewish scholars, they write something called the Mishnah, and they describe 39 separate classes of work that violate the Sabbath. 39 classes of work, and who knows how many categories underneath that. Some of us have a hard time getting to one class of work, but 39 different ones, and this includes 
carrying something from one place to another, which is what the man just did. So the man is healed. He picks up his mat. His life is immediately changed. He immediately goes to the temple of all places where he has not been able to go his entire life. And the first thing he's met with at the door is the Pharisees saying, you can't carry the mat. Never mind the fact he's been laying on it for 38 years and they don't mention the miracle at all. They just mention the violation. The very God that they are trying to honor in observing the Sabbath is working among them. And they don't even see it. So the man tells them about Jesus. And then they confront him for healing on the Sabbath. And we see his response in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Here's the logic God the Father works at all times, even on the Sabbath. He holds the world together by his providential care, even on the Sabbath. He is my Father. Jesus says, and I am his son by implication. And therefore, I work at all times, even on the Sabbath. We'll get more into the relationship about the father and the son next week. But verse 18 gives us the bridge to that. And I want you to see it because from here, the mission of Jesus continues. But the sentiment toward him moves from persecution to trying to kill him. It says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. But for today, we're reminded. Don't miss, don't miss it. Don't miss that Jesus' work in the present points to his greater work in the future. Don't miss the fact that in your very life right now, his work in your life is pointing to his greater work for your future. That the provision that he gives to you in the present points to his greater provision. Don't let the physical comforts of this life numb your urgency for your every single day need to rely on him to sin no more. And when you do sin and stumble and fall to rely on him every single day for his grace and for his forgiveness. Remember that he is the son of God. He can do all things that God does. And so don't get caught in the temporary. Don't be short-sighted. Kirk Cousins is a quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. And he has a sculpture outside of his house with an odd purpose. It's intended to remind him that he's going to die. He's hoping to live till 90 years old. And so the quarterback has a jar of 200, or excuse me, 720 stones, one for each month he hopes to live at his home. Each month he takes a stone out of the jar, 
and he carries it with him. He told ESPN reporter Tori Roy that every month he's going to take out a stone, put it in his pocket, and think, once this month is over, this is gone. You can't get it back. It's gone for good. It's only a little morbid <laughs> until you remember that as Cousins takes out the stones, he has a visual reminder right outside his front door of his house that his time on earth is getting shorter and shorter. And that's an idea that he derived from the Bible. Psalm 90.12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And Cousins says, You have an understanding that life is coming to an end someday, and that we only have so many days, and there's wisdom in that. Perspective beyond our circumstances. There's nothing short-sighted about that. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we long to taste the fruit of eternity. We need help every day for our needs, both our needs in this life and our most pressing need. We thank you for Jesus who meets the needs of this life and of eternity abundantly so. And we pray, God, that you would give us not only perspective and eyes to see, but that you would give us resolve to follow for the sake of his glory, the glory of the Son. Amen.